0: If you're in that mindset, that old traditional way of thinking that success is only about, you know, how many kids get an A on the quiz or the test or how many kids are on the honor roll, you're losing sight of what's important. And that is really teaching those those life skills that kids need to be successful after the bell rings at three o'clock.
1: No time, no tools, big expectations. How do you transform school culture without derailing the train? Answer: Little wins that bring big changes. The flywheel effect. Harnessing the power of momentum to create a school culture that celebrates change and drives itself.
2: Hello and welcome. My name is Jordan Pruitt. I'm here with my co-host, Anna Murphy. We are both former educators, now working with the live school team to support your school's culture vision. Our show focuses on all the opportunities for little wins that can create big changes in school culture. The Flywheel Effect is all about sharing stories of administrators, school support staff, and other educational change agents that have succeeded in their initial lift and created cultures They have so much momentum, they grow and improve exponentially. Uh, We're joined today by Dr. Greg Goins, who's Director of Ed Leadership at Georgetown College, uh, just up the road from me in uh, uh, Georgetown, Kentucky. And he's also the host of the Reimagine Schools podcast. Uh, We're really happy to have have Greg with us here today. And Greg, before we jump in, I was going to see if you wanted to introduce yourself a little bit, uh, talk about what you're working on this summer.
0: All those kind of things. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm always excited to talk with like minded folks about school culture and leading school district change. So uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Um, prior to working in higher education, I spent 15 years as a school district superintendent in Illinois. Uh, I've been a middle school, high school principal, um, started my career as a high school English teacher uh, and a coach. And so I've, I've worn a lot of different hats over the years. Uh, I do quite a bit of educational consulting now. Uh, I work with the Modern Classrooms Project, which is an innovative uh, instructional model, and also working with John Tanner at Brave Ed on a benefits-based accountability framework. So uh, a lot of irons in the fire, but I really enjoy working with uh, both uh, sitting school leaders and those aspiring school leaders that are going through our programs. So that's great. All those different roles and perspectives are going to be great for our show Um,
2: because like we're talking about... Like small changes that can impact things like beyond your current role, and you've so you've seen it in a lot of different spots, which is going to be excellent for this. Um, one question I did have before we jumped in because you said you were you started as a teacher and coach, but so that's a a lot of like school leaders started that way, myself included. What'd you coach?
0: I coached uh, high school boys basketball uh, for a while. I've coached girls softball, uh, coached golf, uh, junior high baseball, uh, and I was a student athlete myself growing up. And so anything that that was needed. I was always willing to drive the van and, and hit ground balls, uh you know, for the for the baseball team. Enjoyed every minute of it too.
2: Yeah, that's I mean, that, that's probably why I originally got it got into education was those kind of things. And yeah, like I did baseball and football, and like you said, I was hit a lot of ground balls and driving vans for a little while. All those kind of things. um So we we'll go ahead and jump into uh, our first segment if you'd like. uh So our first segment is called "Be a Change Maker." So it's a lot of things about career type questions, because our listeners are, are largely gonna be um, school administrators or, or teachers who have some administrative um, aspirations. They're looking to see, you know, how, how can I make changes within my community? Um, so we wanna talk about how you've been able to do that. So in this segment, a couple of career lifestyle questions. The first one, and we just, we kind of spoke on it just a little bit right then, but um, how did your career in education begin? So like your, your first job, and how does that experience
0: shape you going forward? Well, I'm actually the son of two educators. My mother's a retired foreign language teacher, and my father's a retired school superintendent. So I kind of followed that same career path. He was a teacher and a coach, and then worked into a principal's position before finishing up as a superintendent. So, I mean, my start was really, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the schools, And I think I started as a part time custodian at one of my dad's schools when I was in college just to kind of get a feel for, you know, working in a school. So I've done a a wide variety of things. Uh, A lot like you, um, Jordan, I also got into this to coach because that was a passion of mine uh, very early on. Uh, But I actually started in the journalism field. Uh, I was a journalism major and really didn't have a desire to go into education. You know, both of my parents were there. And so I kind of knew what that looked like. And so I tell people all the time, I worked in the newspaper business back when the newspaper was a big deal. Uh, It used to be a big deal to get your picture in the paper and your name in the paper. And that was really the only source of news before social media. So that gives you an idea of of how old I am and and all the gray hair. But, uh, you know, I I worked in the newspaper field for a while and really enjoyed that. Uh, And then my high school coach actually asked me, my high school basketball coach, asked me if I would come back and serve on his staff as an assistant coach. I started substitute teaching and I just fell in love with being at school every day and and coaching and working with kids and uh, was able to move into a a high school English position and some other coaching duties and uh, eventually moved into school administration and have never really looked back. So that's kind of a,
2: I mean, it's not, it's not the same path as everyone, but because everyone doesn't have, you know, two parents that are in education, but I do think for folks that got into it, a lot of times they, they grow up around it in a way that's like more than just them going to school. So like, like like you said, like you were, you were in the schools all the time. Um, I myself, I had like a lot of older cousins who were in sports and things. So it meant I was like on campus like all the time. So I just kind of like, it was, that's your community. You get used to it. Um, So, and I like, that's the part, like when we're talking about school culture stuff, we want to, we're, we're going to harp on that community a lot. And that, that kind of, that's kind of a theme of the podcast. We
0: go back to that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and, you know, really in my family, school was the family business. That's what we talked about around the dinner table. Those were the conversations we had on an ongoing basis. And in a small community, I grew up in a town that didn't even have a stoplight. I had 38 kids in my high school graduating class. So it was a small, tight knit community and everything revolved around the schoolhouse. And so I spent so much time at school uh, and when your dad's the, the principal or the coach, you know, the perk is he has the key to the gym so you can go over and, sh- and shoot baskets anytime. But there's also a downside too. you know, if you go to school and your dad's the principal um, you know, that's not always good for uh, the play, the playground politics, but uh, it-, it teaches you a lot at a very early age about the importance of leadership and what that looks like. And both my parents, I think the thing they taught me more than anything growing up was servant leadership, because they were always the first one to raise their hand and volunteer to do the the hard things in our community. And they still do to this day. I mean, they're still leaders in, in, in the community that I grew up in. So uh, that's something I take with me to this day.
1: Well, one of the things that strikes me about your background and experience is the longevity of your time in education, which unfortunately isn't all that common anymore and I'm wondering how much that idea of community right and that feeling that calling for servant leadership has driven the length of your career within education to or your desire to stay within it
0: I think that's a good question. once you get into it you start working with kids and you start seeing the benefit of being an educator, I still believe it's the greatest job in the world. I mean it's so so fulfilling in so many different ways. Uh, unfortunately education gets a bad rap a lot of times. You know, we're going through this massive teacher shortage. You can't find substitute teachers. There's a lot of negativity around just, you know, school in general. But I I think this is an exciting time to be an educator because technology has really created so many new opportunities to really help kids achieve their goals and, and chase their dreams. And I think the role of the teacher has changed. And that's probably the thing that I've tried to pivot to the most when I talk with folks about how we need to rethink or reimagine, if you will, what that classroom looks like. So I'm excited every day. And uh, I, I hope I'm, I'm healthy enough and able to work for a very long time, um, you know, throughout the rest of my career. So, and that, that leads us to like the next, next little piece here. Um,
2: can you speak on how like your work and experience has impacted your outlook on education? So that's what we've been doing, but specifically because you've had uh, so many roles in so many places what strikes you as places that have strong culture? You know, and, and those are the things that you know, that keep educators around, I, I think, is when places have strong culture. So you've you've seen a lot of different places. What, what do they have in common?
0: You know, culture is interesting to me. And, uh, you know, anytime you have a new coach that's hired, whether it's an NFL football coach or a college coach, the first thing they say during that first press conference is, we're going to come in and change the culture. And it's like you take this magic wand and you can fix everything overnight. And in a sports sense, it's usually related to to losing. You know, how can we get back on a winning track? What do we have to do to kind of change some things and find success? So, but I mean, I've been doing this long enough. I can walk into a school and within ten minutes, I have a pretty good idea of what your school culture is just by how I'm greeted in the office, just how people interact with me. Uh, and in my mind, culture is a feeling. It's not this big thing that You you just like I said you know take the magic wand out and poof we're gonna have a better school culture. It takes time, and I describe it more as as a big puzzle. So if you think about a hundred puzzle pieces, there's a lot to designing a really strong school culture. But for me, it's all about a feeling. You know how do you make people feel when they walk into the building? How do you support teachers? How do they feel working with the with the school administration? How do kids feel? Do they feel loved? Do they feel supported? Uh, you know, how do people in the community feel when they come into your building? They feel like it's a, a place in which, uh, you know, they have a voice and they have an opportunity to participate. So all those things kind of go together. But uh, I, I think a lot of times, especially young administrators, make the mistake of coming in and say, boom, we're going to change culture. And they're really not sure what that means because they haven't spent enough time in the district. So you have to spend a lot of time talking to folks. And you really have to look both internally and externally. If you really want to know what people think about your school, go to the local coffee shop and spend about a half an hour and listen to people talk about the school. And a lot of times we're afraid to have those conversations because, you know, we don't know what rabbit hole we're going to go down. But it's very important to get that external perception and, and just understand how people feel about their local school and their communities.
2: So, yeah, like the, um, the the thing that jumped out at me, what you're saying is kind of is the feeling um, like when I when I write about it, a lot of times I call it like a vibe. Like when you go in the place, like it's, it feels like a good place to be. I want to be here. And there's some schools you go into, and you don't really get that feeling. You know, you kind of tell like this is not a, not a great, great environment. You know, what I mean, like so those things are important and like creating that vibe. And you said something really, really, I think it is a nugget that. Administrators who are listening should should hear. Take some time to get to know the culture that's there before you try to change what's change it. Uh, it's really hard. It's hard to change something when you don't understand it to begin with. You know that's and like not even just the the idea of culture, but the specific culture of that building. Because I've, I've seen and I've heard stories from people I've been friends with who said similar things. Like I probably tried to do too much too early, and I messed up things I didn't know about.
0: <laughs> Yeah, and I think you also have to honor all the things that have happened before your arrival when you come to a new job and a new school. Uh, And when people automatically begin talking about school culture, I think the perception is that everything is wrong and I'm going to come in and save the day and fix it. And I think that's a little disrespectful to the people that have worked in that school for long periods of time. We know that there are good things, great things even happening in a lot of different schools around the country. There's always room for improvement. There are always different areas in which you can Um, you know, make sizable differences in terms of improving your culture. But it's a process. It's not something that's going to happen the first week, the first month, maybe not even the first year. And I think the big mistake a lot of people make is, you know, a fresh coat of paint and some inspirational messages on the wall aren't necessarily going to get it. It's going to take a lot of work and you're going to really have to take a deep dive into, you know, what are some of the real challenges and, and do really a root cause analysis on you know, what is the root of the problem and how are we going to fix some of these things? Some of them you can fix pretty quickly. Some of them are going to take some time. But I, I think we really have to be careful when we talk about changing school culture as, as a new leader, uh, because I think you need to shift the conversation to what are the things that we do really well and what are the things that really need some improvement?
1: Well, and I'll let Jordan jump in here, but I just wanted to add, I was talking to someone this morning about like, looking for your heroes that you might not even realize exist within your building right like it's we were saying yesterday in a conversation like education is really siloed in a way right like you're in your classroom um you're in your hallway but when you come in and you're a new building leader you don't even know what what is happening within those classrooms and there could be really beautiful wonderful things and without taking the time to see that, I think it comes off a bit presumptuous, right? Or those teachers that have invested so much time into building just such a wonderful classroom environment, it often then gets overlooked and I think creates some of that frustration. But Jordan, I'll let you jump in here too.
2: Yeah. So one of the cool things about getting to do this show is getting to talk to educational leaders like around the country. And they they a lot of times they they have different approaches and different backgrounds, but it's interesting that the parts they pull out that are the same. It's like folks that have never met and like are on a different coast. Like we met, interviewed a, a guy from Seattle, Washington, and about change management. And he said something very similar to what you said, you just said about honoring the work that came before you. Um, so like understanding, like a lot of good work happened before you came in there and they'll take, make sure you're honoring that before you go be to start, you know, changing everything. Uh, it's just really, it's, it's very interesting. Like we're all like, we're all like disconnected and like you may not talk, but you come to some of the same conclusions through experience.
0: Yeah. And I really think you have the mindset that when you walk into a new job, there are really good things that are there and that have been in place. And and the goal is to move from good to great. So you start having those conversations. It's not about, you know, the sky's falling. Everything's terrible based on our test scores and our graduation rates and whatever other nonsensical thing we're trying to measure school success with. It, it's, you know, just affirming that there are really good things happening here how can we take it to the next level because we can always get better and that's through building relationships with people and um, you know Anna you talked a little bit about teachers in the building and I can tell pretty quickly who the best teachers are in the building just by how they interact with kids you know how are they building relationships you may have the most the greatest content knowledge in the building but if you can't talk with kids and relate to them on their level I always tell, tell new teachers, you're teaching kids, not content. The content will be part of what you're doing, but at the end of the day, kids have to come first. And if you can't build a relationship with each and every kid in your classroom, then you're probably going to have a long school year.
2: Um, Yeah, those are, those are things that are going to make it keep going. Uh, That brings us to the last question in this segment, Greg. Um, So you you get to talk to a lot of aspiring leaders in, in your role and, Looking at education as it is right now, if you could point them in one direction and say, all right, try to, try to lift this rock, fix this problem, where, where, where would you point them?
0: You know, I, I referenced this earlier. I think the biggest rock we need to lift is the role of the classroom teacher. You know, I, I go back to when I first taught as a high school English teacher back in 1995, and I lectured for 52 minutes a period all day, and then I went and coached basketball in the afternoon and did whatever else I did extracurricular-wise, at the end of the day, I lost my voice. And if if the adult's the one that's doing all the talking, doing all the preparation, then how can we expect kids to take more ownership of their own learning? So we have to put teachers in a position to think differently about their role. Uh, Information's a commodity. Every student has all the information they need at their fingertips. If you have 25 kids, they all have a Chromebook. And, and if they can Google something real quickly or ask Siri, it wasn't a very good question to start with anyway. So you have to change the way you prepare, change what your goals are as a classroom teacher. We have to get kids more involved, give them more ownership, and, you know, put them in a position to be more collaborative and use critical thinking skills. And that's just not going to happen if you're at the front of the room lecturing the whole period and they're sitting there in straight rows, you know, taking notes. Uh, I saw a statistic the other day that kids forget everything that they've, they've been told. Uh, during a typical school day within three days. So if your plan is to lecture on Monday and Tuesday and give a test on Friday, you're in big trouble because those kids aren't going to remember it if you just expect them to, by osmosis, listen and and remember and memorize the things that you've told them. So I think that's the big rock we need to lift. Teacher ed programs need to do a better job of shifting the, the role of the teacher, and school leaders need to have these conversations. And it's going to be scary because it's different we think about the traditional school model and what that looks like, but this is a different time. Technology's changed the game, and we have to put kids in a position to, you know, take much more ownership of what they're doing in the classroom. So that um, that reminded me
2: of, and like, professional development gets, gets gets a bad rap in some cases. Some cases it's really good. In some cases, it's opportunities. Um, a few years into my career, I got uh, the opportunity, I was a science teacher and, and a coach. And I got the opportunity to do a project lead the way, which this is a free plug for them. I don't know anybody there, but um, it it changed my perception of me being a direct instruction. I'm here to deliver information to facilitate and facilitating like lessons and labs that that idea, just like that mindset shift made my whole room run better. Even when I wasn't doing project Lead the way courses, like it just like, I'm, I'm here to facilitate the learning, not necessarily like always be the one giving it. So that, that's kind of, it, it goes hand in hand with what you were saying there, I, I think. Hey guys, this is Jordan from Life School. And today I want to tell you about the Dulles School of Excellence. They're one of our partners from Chicago, Illinois. In 2021, they set out to improve behavior in their school and improve their school culture. And Larry Williams, who's their culture and climate coordinator, decided to go out setting up a PBS and SEL program. It was important to him that it was measurable, it was easy to manage, and it was compliant with state privacy laws. He succeeded in that in a big way. Nullis had 100% adoption among teachers, 500,000 points earned by students last year. They had a 12 to 1 positive to negative point ratio. That's over 35,000 positive behavior and SEL interactions logged. Cool thing about that is you could do it too. They did it with Live School. If you want to find out how, check us out at whylifeschool.com.
1: I appreciate what you were just saying too about the facilitating um, instruction, uh, Jordan, and kind of what you're talking about, Greg. When I first stepped into uh, my classroom, I I'm a control freak like that's just who I am and I remember having this perfectly planned out curriculum like UBD my content and skills and standards and I was so prepped and I really learned like very quickly like my job was to almost organize that chaos right and try to like get students active and and learning. And I was the type of kid that would just like sit and study and take in what a teacher was saying in a lecture and actually really thrive. And to flip that, like it just challenged who I was to my core, but it made me such a, not just a better teacher, but a better person in a way to like understanding how to interact with people in a way that empowered them. I, I don't know. I just, I really appreciated it. It brought me back to my time teaching six years ago now. And it's still to this day, like the relationships I had with my students there, like stick with me and when I'm in Portland, I still run into some of them sometimes, and it's always fun to see
0: them. You start a new school year, and I see all these teachers on, on social media. They're so excited about coming back to school, which is great. But they're talking about, uh, you know, they're, they're doing the clear, clear the list and all the things they want to buy to decorate their room. And that's great. I, I love the excitement and the enthusiasm there. But I think we also need to rethink the space a little bit that needs to be a shared space. Your classroom is a shared space. It's not just something the teacher wants to decorate and make that the teacher space. It needs to be a space for all the kids. So I love it when I talk with teachers that are, you know, give kids the opportunity to be co-designers in what the class is going to look like, you know, ask them the first day or the first week, you know, what do you want? How do you want to decorate the classroom to make it feel more like a home to you, a second home? you know, maybe it's putting pictures of you and your family, you know, around the classroom, or maybe it's doing something different. And I think in terms of school culture, we have to really shift the mindset to change the space. It's not just the teacher space. It belongs to everybody. So, um, you know, that would be my advice for a lot of teachers out there that are excited about starting the new new school year and getting into the classroom as quickly as possible. Yeah, that, that that that
2: spoke a lot to the, the high school teacher in me, is we're very... Um, we're, we're notorious for, for no decorations. And what I, w- I would do, and not not really even on purpose, but I think it had a, the result you're talking about. Because I didn't really have, have that much thought into it. It just, as a high school teacher, you don't really decorate. And I was a, I, I had a, a science lab, so I didn't really do a lot to it until I would do projects. And all my projects had something I could display that kids made. You know what I mean? So, like, a little bit into it, my room became, it became their room. Um, and I hadn't really thought of it that way, but it probably helped a lot that you know, they they could come in and kind of see themselves in the room because they had stuff hanging up there. You now,
0: Yeah. With, without doubt. So, I mean, it, it could be your room, my room or our room and, and uh, you know, we all need to row together. So uh, I think if we can make that a reflection of all, all the kids in your classroom and we're all kind of on the same team, I think that's going to help your school culture.
1: I was going to say, even just like, to use the word culture in a slightly different way from a cultural perspective there too. I, I taught a really diverse group of students and for them to have been able, like a lot of them were English language learners, to be able to bring in their, you know, home culture where they had come. Like, I, I just think, I, oh man, I wish I could go back <laughs> right now and, and change some of that and, and bring that in. It, I think it just would have made them all feel so much more connected to each other too.
0: And, you know, maybe a simple activity is that the first couple of days of school is You know, give them a camera. They probably already have their iPhones with them and give them the freedom and the time to take pictures of each other and to walk around the school and, and, you know, make funny videos or whatever it is they want to do and, you know, create a space for them to share that in the classroom, too, because, uh, again, they're going to be in that room for a long period of time and and it is going to become a second home. And if they can feel that it's a more comfortable space, that's why I'm so big on flexible seating. You know, get rid rid of all these hard chairs and these desks that a lot of the kids can't even fit in, the larger kids at the high school level. You know, bring some tables and chairs in, some flexible seating options. I mean, I also think you need to bring in, you know, a loveseat or a couch or uh, a floatable device that maybe you would use in the backyard pool. But, you know, something fun and give kids a chance to, to relax and enjoy the classroom environment. You know, I really think classrooms need to look more like your local Starbucks than they do, you know. Currently, and it's kind of institutional with the same wall color and the the desk and the rows and the teacher's desk. And it can be a, you know, a very depressing place to spend all day. So why not make it fun and enjoyable for the kids?
2: And that, that's a good point. I hadn't really even thought about it from that perspective. because I like the flexible seating, too. And um, I, I've, I've worked on the building that had like um, uh, tables that could be moved really easily. Like they, they, were, they were designed that way. That was a point. Um and I like that a lot and I always had like, you know, lab tables that I could adjust and do different different ways. But um I did a lot of my I do a lot of my best work when I'm at the local Starbucks over here. And like if you pop her Lexington, you may see me sitting on one of those couches or at a table. Um that's a good point. I got our kids our kids work that way too, which makes sense.
0: Yeah, I, I rarely um, uh, you know, learn things myself sitting at the kitchen table. You know, I'm usually in my recliner or laying on the floor or you know, on the treadmill or, you know, with with technology, you can really learn anytime, anywhere. So I think we need to reflect that in our classrooms as well.
2: So uh, the last segment we're going to do here, Greg, is called uh, let's move the flywheel. So we're talking about the little lifts that can turn into big momentum. Now, that, that's that's the idea behind the shows. So that's that's kind of where we, we finished with here can you share a story of a small change you led or observed? And this could have been something you were directly involved with, or was in the district you were working in um, that it deliberately changed the culture of a school, but like, it's a, a, a small lift, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like not a, not a, not a giant program that was like, all right, this is, we're, we're doing all this. Everybody's got all these steps, but like one small change that led to big changes.
0: You know, I, I think the biggest change that I've, Personally, I've been involved with, and I see a lot is just again we talked about culture being a feeling from the from the school principal's perspective or the administrative team. If you want to include assistant principals and all those people in, in your in your main office, just a, a feeling of um, you know freedom to take risk. You know, I call it a green light culture. Uh, Pam Moran is a great uh, superintendent from Virginia, former Virginia Superintendent of the Year. She called it creating a culture of yes. So if a teacher comes to you and they say, Dr. Goins, we want to try flexible seating and this is kind of what we want to do, A, B, and C, you know, it's a lot of times it's real easy to say no and just dismiss it because either we don't have money in the budget or maybe it's not the right time. But if you really create this green light culture and you let people take the chance and they feel like they can take some ownership in what's going to happen in their classroom, I think that goes a long way to not only building school culture, but it also leads to to one of those big levers for change because they know that it's a safe place and, you know, it's okay to fail. And I used to tell teachers all the time, it's, you know, if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. I was the king of pilot projects. You know, I had on this side of the hallway, I was doing PBL, flexible seating. I had a maker space. And, um, you know, I, I, it, you think about the business world, you know, a lot of time and money is invested into research and development but for some reason in education we can't do those things because if we fail we're going to be embarrassed or it's going to you know hurt our test scores or whatever the case is going to be but you can't innovate you can't become an innovator if you're not willing to take big risks and creating that green light culture is so important you know let them do those things let them try and i always tell people what's the worst thing that's going to happen you know you're going to you're going to reboot you're going to make some adjustments and you're going to try again but there's going to be a learning process uh, throughout the way. Not only are you going to learn as the, the teacher in the classroom, but kids are going to learn too, that not everything's perfect. Success is not a straight line. It never has been. So uh, you zigzag all you can and all you want to really become the most innovative school that you can.
1: Well, and I was going to say in the business world, there's actually this phrase we say, fail fast. So like that's a goal, right? To, to try something, to fail, fail quickly and learn from it, right? So we can get to something better. And I just think if we could, re- I work with a lot of teachers now and and um, obviously school leaders too. And, and to bring that idea that education can feel so high stakes because it is, but there are small things that, you know, won't impact the overall experience of a student in a large way or their learning trajectory, but we can try something and it might really help or we can learn from it and implement something else. So I think that fail fast mentality is, actually really powerful but isn't something that's in education currently.
0: Yeah and I think it's also important to redefine what success looks like not only at the school level or district level but in your classroom and you know that's that's a difficult conversation but if if you're in that mindset that old traditional way of thinking that success is only about you know how many kids get an A on the quiz or the test or how many kids are on the honor roll you're losing sight of what's important and that is really teaching those those life skills that kids need to be successful after the bell rings at three o'clock. So we have to put them in a position to really understand, you know, how to problem solve, how to collaborate, you know, how to really think more critically about solving some of these wicked problems that we need to solve on a daily basis in our society. So uh, we need to, you know, provide a framework in which they feel like they can take those really big risks and it's okay to fail. So I agree with you 100%. So the, the follow up to that question
2: is, and, and this is not really meant as a like discouragement to try at all. What we're trying to find is, when folks are, if you're going to be the, the the pilot program teacher, which which I was too, and I think if you're if you're an aspiring leader, that that's that's the best advice for those folks who are trying to, to if they want more responsibility and things, start something. Um, what are, can you think of a story when when change failed? Like, and really what we're trying to get at is. For the, for the next time, for the next time you try, what's the, what's the fix? That's what we're trying to get to. But like that, something that has been attempted, but it did not work. And like, here's
0: why it didn't work. I think any effort is going to be a success. Now, it may not, the end result may not be what you had originally planned for, but you're going to get something valuable out of that that's going to help you improve the next time. I, I think the only time that uh, I have failed personally or that I see school leaders fail in terms of trying to change the culture of a building, is when it's a very top-down approach. You know, if if I was as a superintendent, if I'm going to send out an email, or if I'm going to stand up in front of a faculty meeting and say, "Okay, guys, beginning September first, everyone's going to do project-based learning." You know, send me your lesson plans and good luck. You know, that's probably not going to be met with a lot of enthusiasm. But if I can provide resources for teachers uh, early on and say, "Hey, look at this," or listen to this great podcast with Bob Lenz from PBL Works on how they're doing this at this school or that school. Or, hey, Ross Cooper has this amazing book out on hacking PBL. Provide them with opportunities to kind of have those conversations in their building and then help facilitate those conversations, kind of be a coach and a mentor along the way. And then real success begins when they start coming to you and say, hey, Dr. Goins, we really want to try project-based learning after Christmas because we've read this book or we're doing this research and we're excited about it. And if you can get a few people to try it, that builds momentum. And I always say it only takes one match to start a pretty big fire. And that's how you kind of build momentum in your school and you get people excited about things. But the worst thing you can do is, you know, give a directive and tell people this is what they're going to do because you're going to lose them pretty quick and pretty fast.
2: Yeah, that's kind of the, and I would, I would think about it like guiding change and not declaring change. You know, I mean, like that, that and just just like you said, like when you come out and say, all right, here is everything we're changing right here. And it starts on this day. You, you get you're going to get pushback just based on how you did it. And whereas if you can provide resources and you can gradually and then you find a little momentum, you find that spark somewhere that's probably outside of your office. That's that's probably the way to go, um, which leads us into the last question here. And you can and you can look at this from any any role you've been in in any level, if you want but we're looking at ways that educators could find ways to improve culture in a way that can scale. So like it can go past their current role. So I can be talking about a teacher. How do they, how do they change the culture outside of their classroom, not just in the room and or administrator? How do you change it outside of your school? Or if you're like an an AP, how do you change it outside of your grade level or hallway? Uh, Or even if you're a district person, how do you change like statewide culture? Maybe Maybe, you you can think real big if you wanted, but not just scale, but see, be sustained. So like after you leave that role, how does it keep going?
0: Uh, that's that's a challenging question. And anytime, again, you know, you're talking about leading school change. And if it was easy, it probably would have already been done. So you really have to think in terms of, again, creating situations in which uh, teachers can have success. And then once they do have success, recognize what they're doing and create opportunities for other teachers to go in and make classroom visits and kind of be a fly on the wall and see what that looks like. And and again, it kind of goes back to this, you know, research and development phase. As soon as you start PBL, kids are going to love it. Uh, the teachers are going to love it. You're going to have other people from the district probably going to drive over there and peek in your classroom and see what all the excitement's all about. And then, again, that's how you build momentum, and that's how you begin to sustain Some change. Once you get people excited about something, and then you add another classroom here, another classroom there, and before long, you know half this half the classrooms in your building are are full blown PBL. And so now you have you know what I call really this big shift in your school. If you can get two thirds of the teachers doing something innovative in in your school, then eventually that's going to become the norm, and that's going to become the culture of your building. But again, that takes time that's not something that's going to happen overnight but you know you have to celebrate every small success and if you if you maintain that and you have that green light culture eventually you're going to have sustained success and before you know it you're going to have principals from other districts calling you say hey we hear great things are going on in your school district i want to bring 10 teachers down on friday to look around is that okay and so now you're really rolling because the word gets out that you're doing some really cool things in your school and uh, and again, that's going to blow up your school culture and really help teachers feel like they're doing something valuable and important for kids. So what they've
2: really jumped out of me from what you said there, it's, it's one of the it's one thing that I think could be a big help for a lot of schools uh, because we've got so many talented folks working in schools. Um, you've got a lot of good work going on down the hallways. You know, what I mean, and it's it's done it's it's done like almost in isolation sometimes. We're really good at. And, and, and this is kind of a recent thing in education, I guess, but we're really good at making PLC time, times for teachers to meet and talk about things. But we're not great at finding that time for them to go observe and watch other teachers do great things. Um, that that I think is a is a small lift that just about any building could figure out a way to do that, w- that could develop into big changes. So like you were saying, if it's PBL, instead of getting together always and just talking about it, find a way for that teacher to go down the hall and see the person who's really good at it do it. And then, then they could take it back and do it. Then it starts growing. Um, they're like that—that's kind of what we're working towards. Is like, what, what's the what's the small lift that turns into the big lift? So, thank you for pointing that out because that's that's something that I've always felt like, man, I feel like I talk to a lot of really smart people. I want to see them do that, <laughs> but it just it doesn't work in the schedule. But finding that time is is something that I think can be done in a lot of places. that would help.
1: And it just starts with one classroom. Like I love that idea that it's like or a few classrooms, right? If you're in implementing project-based learning which it then it doesn't have to be this huge school-wide initiative as you mentioned sending out that email being like we're doing this y'all get ready send me your stuff it's let's it goes into like that principle that comes into a school finding those teachers that are already doing really innovative things because there's probably a teacher that's already doing a version of PBL or who's super passionate about it and Get empowering them to just do more of that and to become the expert, and yes, it takes more time, but it's going to be done so much better and authentically, and with so much more buy-in and enthusiasm from just about everyone. So I, I just I, I think it's such a powerful example.
0: And and I think when we talk about change, I mean we can all agree change is difficult. But I I, I describe change the same way. You know, my wife and I have a storage unit that is stacked to the very top. You can hardly open the door. And I can't tell you how many conversations we've had about this weekend. We really need to go over there and clean out that storage unit. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I really don't. I want to do anything but that. And so it's a little overwhelming and you don't want to do it. But if we decide, well, we're going to go over there and we're each going to grab a box and take it home. And we're going to go through stuff and maybe sort some things. You know, if you can bring one box home at a time, you know, you can slowly start chipping away at it. It's the same thing with leading change in a school district you know, just start in one classroom or two classrooms and build some momentum and get some things going. And before long, you know, you're going to find success and you're going to see the floor in the, uh, in the storage unit, and you're going to get excited about maybe doing something different. So, uh, I think a lot of times when things are hard, we just, we just don't want to do it. And we find excuses not to do things, but if we're ever going to make, you know, long-term change, we have to really attack it one box at a time.
2: So, Greg, at this point, I want to make sure that any of our listeners have a chance to find you on all your social media. Uh, I want to make sure they, they go and follow your show and subscribe. So if you want to, want to plug how, how they can find you and, and your show and where they can
0: find that and all the things. Well, yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Been a great conversation. I could talk about this all day. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Greg Goins. Uh, my Reimagine Schools podcast, as they uh, say, is wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google. Uh, Spotify. I even found the podcast on the iHeartRadio app the other day, and I didn't even know it was uh, was on there. So it's pretty easy to find and uh, connect with me on Twitter. I- I'm typically very responsive. Uh, I do a lot of public speaking uh, throughout Kentucky and Illinois. And, um, you know, I have a book coming out uh, at the beginning of the new year based on the many podcast episodes that I've done. Uh, and so it's going to be on school leadership. So you can get updates on that as well. But Thanks for having me. I enjoy the conversation and I wish you guys luck as you start this new venture.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. We're recording this early my time. It's 8.15 a.m. now and I am just energized for, for the day now. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. The Flywheel Effect, harnessing the power of momentum to create a school culture that celebrates change and drives itself.